This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Charlie Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver, it's time for the big finale of Cherry Creek Week. We'll be back with our usual news roundup next Friday, but today, thanks to our sponsor, Transportation Solutions, we're talking traffic, density, the recent changes to Governor Polis's big land use bill, and of course, parking. Everything that's going to shape the future of this neighborhood forever. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the annual Transportation Solutions Conference on Wednesday morning. Today is Friday, April 21st. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. I'm Bree Davies. I'm the host of a podcast called CityCast Denver. We are recording it right now. You're seeing it live. It will be in our feed later this week. Um, this is part of a series that we are doing um, in, with Transportation Solutions about Cherry Creek. So all week, we've been talking about Cherry Creek, the history, um, the ecosystem that is the mall, uh, the neighborhood itself, the struggles that Denver has in general with how we grow, what growth looks like, and how we include as many voices as possible in that conversation. So today we're talking specifically about growth in Cherry Creek, um, centered on this conversation around the Cherry Creek West development. Uh, It's been talked about, but I think it's important to think about its location right next to the mall. Um, I grew up in this city. I grew up going to that mall when it opened in 1990. My mother grew up going to the Sears before the mall was there. So this um, conversation is really close to my heart. I am really excited to get to have this panel of wonderful experts to talk about what development looks like when we include all of the components, the transit, the housing, the people that make it work. So I'm going to quickly introduce our panel and we'll just get started. Um, Okay, first I've got Chris Nevitt, you are a citywide manager for transit-oriented development at the city and county of Denver. I know you as a former council member, and I learned in a pre-interview with you that you're a former labor organizer, so welcome. Um, Thank you for being here. David Zucker, you're the CEO of Zocalo Development. Um, You've been called a good developer by Westward, and I thought that was fascinating. One of one of five, one of five. So, um, but you're behind some really cool projects like the Quail on Broadway and Coda in Cherry Creek. Um, and then finally, I've got True Apodaca, political director for SEIU Local 105, with a background in community advocacy. Um, he's previously run his own lobby firm, True Strategies Colorado, where he advocated for communities of color around issues like housing policy, reproductive justice, economic justice, and immigration justice. Thanks for joining me, True. Thanks for having me. Okay, so 
I'm going to direct a couple questions to you all specifically, but after that person answers, if you want to chime in, please feel free. This is a very open conversation. Um, David, we're here because developers are looking to Cherry Creek right now instead of places like downtown. I mean, there's a ton of projects going in, which means massive growth that I know a lot of neighbors are worried about. Um, why is a neighborhood like Cherry Creek attractive to developers like yourself? I, I, that's a... Uh, an excellent starting place. Um, I think that there are these, uh, in any high-performing cities, uh, I think that there are these places where people want to be. There's a, there's a mix, which Wayne knew. Uh, I didn't see Wayne knew here, but I, I imagine that a few years ago he, he would have been here. Um, then Wayne knew was acknowledging that was really at the, at the cusp 10 years ago. Mike Hughes was, uh, was there and, and mediating. So thank you, Mike, for... And Wayne is a former council member of District no, sorry, 10, but, right? Yeah, and but prior to that, he was the, uh, he was the neighborhood president for yes. Cherry Creek North Neighborhood Association. Um, so Lou, uh, Lou Raiders uh, knows, uh, knows Wayne well, I'm sure, uh, as does Janie. Um, we, um, we are attracted, I think, because there is this wonderful mix. Um, the, the center of high income, of these five high income communities, really starting at Belcaro and Bonnie Bray up north through Polo, through Cherry Creek North, um, on, the, on the far east is, is Hilltop. Um, so I think there's this concentration. Um, more and more, it doesn't have the sharp edges and, um, and sharp elbows that downtown may. Um, it, is, it seems a little bit more bucolic and, and walkable. Um, I think that all of those components are a good recipe for displacement. Mm. Um, displacement hasn't, though, been um, the traditional displacement. Um, really hard to, because there have been you know, relatively higher income folks that lived there initially. Um, but there's an acceleration of that, and, and we've contributed. Our, our uh, CODA project at, at 100 Steel Street um, at, at time had the highest rents in, achieved the highest rents in the state of Colorado. Um, I think then this, this um, the Amy Cara's 15-minute city, is, as we know, and, and I checked with our property managers at our affordable projects, CODA, and, and um, a project in Edit River North, um, there, in, interestingly, there, there's a lot of self-selection, obviously. I mean, you know, the term location, location, location. But um, there's a lot of self-selection uh, where we have an edit. Um, two-thirds of our uh, apartments have associated, uh, less than two-thirds, have associated parking spaces. So we have about 70% car ownership. Uh, in Cherry Creek, where we have almost one and a half spaces per dwelling unit, um, they're, they're all rented, um, whereas Edit in River North, probably about 20% of our residents walk to work, about 90% of our residents in Coda walk to work. So there is this, there's this ecosystem, as I, as I like to term it, a 15-minute neighborhood, um, where we can do these things of everything, these activities of daily life that we need. I, I think that that's so appealing, and that's one of the reasons. I, I've mentioned a set of reasons, too long, sorry, for, <laughs> um, for this acceleration of values and demand for Cherokee. North. Sure, sure. Um, Chris, you know, you worked as a council person, which meant you, you worked directly with constituents on issues like this. Um, now you work on transit issues. When you look at Cherry Creek and this big wave of development, what do you see as challenges and opportunities? 
Yeah, it, it is always a, a challenge. And the, the keynote speaker, you know, he started out with, you know, what, what's the reason that everybody, uh, their, their, their starting position is, no, 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 we, we don't want development. Well, it's because of traffic and congestion. Um, and the, the very compelling case was made that, you know, with mixed use, with active transportation demand management, you, you take the, the, the traffic generation from new development down dramatically. But something that's important to remember is that those numbers are not zero. So, you know, when, when he was saying, oh, we, we you know, here, here's a project, and if it were an ordinary project, you would have this much traffic, and we've reduced the traffic by 60%, but you're still adding traffic. But I think it's important to remember that the choice isn't a really efficient project uh, that you know has much less traffic generation than you might think versus nothing. That's not the choice. So you know, Cherry Creek incredibly successful before the pandemic. Downtown was growing by leaps and bounds. River North going crazy. All of this is is all exactly the right kind of development. The fastest growing counties in Colorado are Weld and Douglas. Interesting, so, which is not so, where we are. No. So the choice is not, you know, high density development and more traffic, just less traffic than you think and or nothing. If we don't do it here, it's it's Weld and Douglas and the kind of development that generates traffic at the original level and they're gonna be driving downtown. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. True, I, I wanted I want to do include you on this panel because you speak with and work with the people, my people, the retail workers, the people behind the scenes. Um, thank you. <laughs> I mean, we don't we don't get acknowledged a lot when we talk about Cherry Creek, but there are thousands of people making that place work. Um, when you think about a tidal wave of development in an area like this, what is relevant to a worker at the mall? Yeah. Uh... You know, going back to the, the keynote speaker said, uh, I think he, earlier he had, he had mentioned that uh, the opposition to the development is traffic and then kind of caveated it with, and some things we're not allowed to say publicly, mm-hmm. right? Well, I'll say it publicly, right? I think it's, it's people are afraid of poor people, people are afraid of uh, people of color and folks that don't look like them. And so as, uh, as we start to talk about 15-minute cities and, and, and those, those type of things, I, I, the thing that comes to my mind is 15 minutes for who? Right? right? So, like, yes, if uh, you can afford to live there, like, it'd be great to walk and get your groceries. Meanwhile, people are driving 20, 30, 40 minutes out, coming in, trying to drop off their kids, trying to get out in time to make sure that they're there to pick them up, take them to wherever. Like, there is an entire ecosystem of people around that particular development or any of these developments that just are completely forgotten about, right? And so, for me, when I hear these things, like, uh, it's, it's, it, to me, it's like a chicken and an egg kind of thing, right? We talk about we need to reduce traffic, but we also now have no way of getting around, right? But each of those things ends up being like 
the reason the other doesn't start, right? So we don't build better density because we don't have the traffic or the, the, the transportation infrastructure, but we also don't build the transportation infrastructure because we don't have the, the density of the people to take it up. I think we need to really consider like the people-focused thing where we're looking at what the ecosystem of folks who can't afford the $3,000 rents in Cherry Creek, right, but are, are, is vitally important to the, to the mission of, of, of getting people out of cars. Yeah, that's a great point. I think uh, I lived with my mother when I worked at the mall. That's how I afforded a retail salary. It, it was tough. It was a different, it was just, I don't know. But I think about people with families. I think about people that are making those multiple trips and how we include them in this conversation. Um, so I want to get really specific. There's this perspective development in particular that's got a lot of people worried and a lot of people excited, and it's Cherry Creek West. Um, the developer's plan includes as many as seven buildings over 10 stories, as well as green space and a better integration like for pedestrians with the mall. Um, true, thinking about this, another, again, we're talking about another development. What would you like to see? What would you think your workers would want out of this prospect that hasn't been built yet? Yeah, I think they'd like to be included, right? I think... Uh, for far too long, we have allowed development that is just unaffordable for people who are who are workers, right? Um, a big problem with that is that we base it on AMI, right? And so we we take a a penance, right? A little 10% of AMI of, of, of affordable units that, as we know, is the last thing that gets developed in any particular. Uh, uh, project, right? So it's very last. We tie it to AMI, and then, but we have 90% of those units that just go up every year, and so we're forcing the folks at the bottom of that rung into homelessness by our policies. So what I'd like to see, I'd like to see uh, bigger uh, percentages of affordable units, right? Something that's focused on the people. Uh, it's even better for the businesses, right? right? It's better for the, for, the, for the businesses in those areas because they don't have to worry about their folks calling out because they can't find childcare, because they can't get to work, because their car broke down. Because, so have, the density is really good for folks who can afford it, but it's even better for the community if everybody's included. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, Chris, this, is, this plot of land is right in the middle of a ton of transportation options, right? It's right by the trail. It's right by where the, the bus lines run. Um, from a city's perspective, what do you want to, when you go to a table with a developer, what do you want to hear from them about incorporating that aspect? You, you mean in, incorporating? Like transit options right. or how we, because if we're bringing more people in, we've got to enhance the ability for transit to carry those people. Right. So there's, there's kind of two, two parts to that formula and I think of it as hardware and software. So on the city side, we're, we're pretty good at the, at the hardware, the building of the streets, building streets that are designed for bicycles. Um, you know, we've put in a lot of red lanes that's bus-only lanes, so, so we, can, we can build that hardware. The software, though, is the education, the, the getting people uh, used to it, to try it. And, and that's where our partnership with Transportation Solutions... Um, the West Corridor TMA, Downtown Denver Partnership, um, uh, South Metro. I mean, that's, that's where that becomes really important because they're installing the, the software in the, the developers, in the residents, in the workers, that you can take advantage of all this 
infrastructure, all this hardware, and in, enjoy both greater convenience as well as lower costs. And so it's a it's a it's a partnership. So we're you know in working with developers, we, we now have the the citywide TDM ordinance. So in in some ways, it's it's kind of like you know, wouldn't you love to do this? Well, if you don't want to do it, that's too bad because I've got a big stick in my hand. But <laughs> I think they 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 embrace it. Because as we've heard from a couple of, of developers, they, they realize, oh, this is, a, this is a great advantage. So that's what we want to see in the development community. Like, you know, how can I work with the city um, on both hardware and software to make life better, more convenient, more fun for the people who use our buildings? David, you're a developer. You're balancing all of these things. You're balancing your relationship with the city, with the transit agency, with... Um, how do you build affordable, but also make a profit and build for people that do want the higher end units? Um, I just wonder, what do you, how do you, how do you balance all of that, or what are the things that maybe we're missing as people outside of the the conversation that just go, oh, the developer just wants to make a ton of money? I, and I, I uh, first of all, my my perspective is. Um, um, melded with uh, commitment to affordability. I was chair of the state housing board um, under um, uh, under Hickenlooper. Um, we we build affordable housing. I, I much prefer to build mixed income housing. We were the first to um, to build uh, using the the city's then new um, density bonus for River North and committed uh, con- uh, voluntarily committed eight percent affordability, which is tr- truly is a um, these are small units, of course. They're not family units. We need family units. Um, we do build family units where we can, but but the balancing uh, of it really is uh, b- beyond the the philosophical and the principled interest. This is a community-wide challenge. Um, so the easy thing to do is to tax the developer, to say it's, it's, it's on your shoulders. The more enlightened thing to do, and that's really where SB 213 goes, and I think SB 213 took a tremendously unfortunate uh, retrograde turn um, over the last few days, losing commitments to density. Um, and this is the massive... Uh, Polis-driven. Polis-driven right. infrastructure. Right. Interestingly, uh, if anybody's uh, aware, um, DeSantis, strangely enough, just signed Live Local, um, a far more expansive uh, affordable housing commitment, goes way beyond the initial 213. I know. Who would have thought? <laughs> and in a, in a Republican-controlled, and it was exactly the opposite. It's like there was a, you get south of the border of Georgia into Florida, and it's like an alternate universe. Right. Um, so who would have thought? And I've read, I, I've read the, the legislature or the, the, the legislation, um, and it's remarkable. So is this just complete flip? And they have two significant funding uh, components. If we don't have the, the funding, then it, it simply is a tax on the developer. If there's not an incentive for density, for uh, reduction in, in parking, um, there's, it's, it's not going to be, the developer simply can't be expected to deliver affordable units. I mean, we, we can um, where there is a Section 42 low-income housing tax credit, for, for instance. Um, beyond that, though, affordable housing is non-economic. These units right. today are costing us 
let, let's just uh, pick uh, uh, Jenny $350,000, $450,000 to, to build each for um, a, a typical one bedroom. Um, the rents, that we, unfortunately, do need $3,000 a month to, to make that financially viable. If now we're reducing that down to 60% or 50% of AMI rents, which are $1,300, we are in the hole. And we're, we're the pro forma is, is worse and worse off because our costs, as everybody knows, costs of construction have increased tr- tremendously. Um, so it's, it, there has to be financial sustainability. It, this is a community-wide challenge, uh, and, and I think, fortunately, SB 213 did a pretty good job. But we need property tax exemption, um, which is, again, a choice of the communities the counties will, uh, will create. Um, we need um, density bonus and, and other things. The city council members are, are focused on. County commissioners and Jeffco are focused on a place like Douglas. They're not. Um, but it's important because we want these communities to be uh, available and attainable to all. What's up, weather fam? Rain or shine, I'm Andy Stein here with your CityCast Denver weather forecast for this weekend. Hey, this week has been all about Cherry Creek, and the weather forecast this weekend is going to give you a lot of options to be indoors and outdoors. Saturday, we have a system moving through. It's starting Friday evening with some rain and snow showers. It's going to drop our temperatures a good bit for Saturday. Highs are only going to be in the mid-40s for the afternoon. Rain and snow showers likely to continue into the afternoon hours as well. Not looking at a huge amount of accumulation, but definitely looking at a cloudy, cool, damp, kind of snowy, and just wet day overall. So a good day to be inside if you're traveling around or doing some weekend shopping. For Sunday, we're looking at a beautiful day outside. It's going to be sunny. We're talking about highs near 60. Should be a really, really pleasant spring afternoon. So keep an eye on the weather because we could be talking about some rain and snow showers continuing through much of the week. Y'all have a great weekend and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. Oh, I want to bring a little bit of a counterpoint to this discussion, and I hate to bring this up to anyone who had to vote in the last election here. I'm going to talk about the Park Hill Golf Course, um, only because uh, voters said no overwhelmingly to a development proposal. Again, it's much more complicated than, we can't compare this directly to this parcel of land. I I know, I know, I know, I I know this subject very well, but it's just something to think about. Like, um, what could we learn from the, the Park Hill non-development for a place like Cherry Creek? Like, what did we, what could we do differently when we have these big parcels that are right in the middle of neighborhoods that have potential, but there's a lot of complexities around it. How can we avoid another Park Hill situation? You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. (laughs) Anyone, but. Uh, I I think Park Hill is is a great example of what I was 
I was trying to point out before that the, the, the choices that people face, I mean, life is all about choices and every choice involves trade-offs. The choice is not between the, the ideal thing that you really want and, you know, some sort of suboptimal proposal that somebody's making to you. It's, it's between real things. So, you know, there, there can, I, I think there were maybe issues with the, the development proposal that the, the, that the developer put forward. There's a lot of history here, but uh, there was a lot of community input that went into their plan, a lot of community benefits that went into their plan. It all still had to make financial sense for them so uh, I think the, the, the city and the community that engaged did a pretty good job of, of, of threading the needle there. Like it's good enough for the developer, but the community and the city and is getting a lot. But what's the alternative? Mm. I think the alternative was not, oh, this is all going to be open space and we're going to be able to walk our dog and play Frisbee and, you know, picnic and stuff, that's, that's not one of the choices. And I, I think, you know, in the next couple of years, we're going to be seeing what we did choose. Mm. There's a famous uh, Arab proverb that you, you should take what you want and pay for it before you're forced to take what you don't want and pay for that. Mm. And so uh, we're going to be paying one way or the other, and we'll, we'll see what that price is. True, I'm thinking about uh, community engagement in that process. Um, I did community engagement and planning for a couple of years. It's really hard to get folks at the table who are often most impacted because they're working. Yeah. Or it's, you know, it's during their work day or it's, they've got an elder, like they, they take care of, they can't make every single steering committee meeting. I mean, these are really big um, commitments. Do you think that is something that we need to reconsider when we look at large projects? Yeah, I think it, I think a lot of times the community input is just a box that developers check, right? Like like you said, people are working, people are are not able to engage in a meaningful way. Um, so what do they do? They vote, right? And so I think despite the the good deal that it looked like and and all of the the hype around it, I, I think people, the voters, ha, have a good bullshit meter, right? And so I, they could tell that there were bad actors, right? Like, I was on the fence, too. Like, Same. I, I don't know where, like, I read through the conservation easement and saw that, like, oh, it is either this or a golf course, right? Uh, so, so the arguments built up on both ends, but I think uh, for me it was just hearing Westside's uh, testimony on in the, in the Senate committee hearing about uh, the metro districts and just you realize that there is this level of unaccountability and, and just bad actors in this space that when the voters ha had to choose, it was either vote with them or not and people were like nah like yeah let's see what let's see what that choice is because uh i don't i think it was a false choice to say it's either this or that the city can come in and and do something uh better yeah david Westside is doing a project right now in loretto heights i, I so many folks actually reached out to us and said we went through the process with them and we think they did a good job do you think that there was something that could be done differently or there was some way that a West Side in the future could do it differently for a, another city close project. I, I think, um, True, your, your points are astute and accurate that 
I think it's often easier to speak with, um, to, to hear from the developer rather than the land developer. Um, Westside is a land developer. Um, they're really, a, I'm, you know, the, their history has been land flipping, um, doing some type of improvement, but they're, uh, they do not have necessarily, and I love Kenneth Ho, uh, um, I, I know Andy uh, pretty well, and I think that generally they're, um, they're good guys of some level of, um, of uh, conscience. Um, I think that they made many missteps and not being the ultimate developer, but trying to crowd around them with Habitat and others, um, I think it rang hollow, unfortunately. Um, I think it's, uh, fortunately, uh, Amy Cara and East West, um, they are uh, among the very best developers in the state. Um, they have a track record of excellent projects. Um, it, it's such a different, um, more competent uh, a, a developer with a real legacy of excellence, of dealing um, forth in a forthright way with affordability, with quality. Um, so Westside couldn't demonstrate that, and they had some missed, unfortunate missteps as well. I think it's a, a you're, you're not saying this specifically, but I think it's um, a, a tremendously, um, it, it is nearly tragedy, uh, that the outcome that, that Park Hill Golf Course is succumbing to. So I want to bring it back to this conversation that we had today um, with Justin Schur about Tyson's Corner in the D.C. suburbs. And it, it was a huge catalyst for development and became the, – the focus was like their traffic mitigation efforts. In Cherry Creek, it feels like we're kind of going the opposite direction where we're building first and hoping that the transportation infrastructure follows. I want to hear from each of you, um, what are some big transit projects that you'd like to see either around this or in Denver that – might help the situation where, like, people are concerned about traffic, people are concerned about parking. What could we do that would make Cherry Creek, for instance, better better to go to that wasn't, I mean, if anyone's driven around Cherry Creek North lately, it's an, an absolute nightmare. How do we, what do we do differently? Now you're looking at me again. You're the transit again. guy, to be fair. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if, if I could spend, like, you know, two minutes giving you the answer to that question, I, I think I'd be making a whole lot more money than I am <laughs> now. So it's a, it's a super complicated uh, problem. But one of the things that I think we've done a poor job at with respect to transportation um, is we, Transportation Solutions did a, a survey of Cherry Creek employees uh, a while ago and, and figured out where they were actually coming from. So we, we have a, a, a bus network, and the bus network was not connecting where the employees live with the jobs. And there have been a couple of efforts to try to figure out how to make that connection, but it, it, and, and some have been more successful than others, but that, that's, not, that's not something that we've done a good job with the city cooperating with RTD to make sure that those employees are being connected because that would make a huge difference. Then there's the transportation demand management, uh, you know, educating people on, on what they, what transportation options do exist and how they can, they can take advantage of them. But then there's some, there's some really big challenges with the hardware. So, you know, first Avenue, 
gee, that's not an ideal configuration. University. Like a swirly maze. It's, a, it's a wild. Swirly maze. <laughs> it's, yes. it's wild yes. to drive through. I can't imagine walking <laughs> it or trying to navigate a bus as a driver through that traffic. Right, right. And, you know, this, you know, Denver moves Cherry Creek is the, the enterprise we're engaged in now. Very complicated. Uh, a lot of a lot of oxes, you know, standing around that are, you know, we'll, we'll try to gore as few as possible. But a lot of a lot of difficult choices and hard trade offs, hard trade offs to make. David, I know as a developer, um, parking minimums, parking spots, parking takes up a lot of room. And this is uh, something I hear time and time again from folks. When we talk about density, we have to do less, we have to figure out how to have less room for cars, not just on the road, but where we store them. How do you balance that as a developer? I mean, outside of like requirements with parking minimums, when you're thinking about like, I want to make, I want to build near a bus, but the bus system isn't that great right there, so it's not going to be a selling point to me for my potential residents. Um, we, well, actually, our, our introduction to um, transportation solutions and Stewart was uh, in partnership for our CODA project in Cherry Creek. Um, that that one is tremendously successful. Our, the statistics are that ninety percent of our, our residents are, are walking to work. That's or, or biking to work. That's remarkable. Um, so there is a lot of uh, self selection. Uh, the, the term I used before. Um, I my my sense is that um, um, that there is always a balance. You, used the word before of affordability and balance of parking of parking maximums um, in our river north project um, two-thirds parking space per one dwelling unit um, that was a risk that was really a risk um, lenders are more accepting and tolerant of it equity investors are but there's a market tolerance as well had we gone much below that then i think we would have gone um, into um, a marketing problem and we wouldn't have been able to absorb uh, absorb apartments um, they're, they're tremendously expensive though i mean the a, a above grade stall is today probably forty forty five thousand dollars below grade is at ten to to twenty percent more per space uh, depending how far one goes down um, so it, it's a it is a a, a balance uh, one of the things that is frustrating to me is that chaffa the Colorado Housing Finance Authority, um, requires that um, there is essentially one-to-one -one parking and that that parking is free. That it is that parking, having a parking space, is the same level of right as the housing itself. Um, in fact, people are, the residents are required to pay for the parking, uh, for, the, uh, for the, the apartment, but they're not required to pay for, for the parking space. Um, that's a real problem when, uh, when Chaffa, now, um, in our notable project, a 4% tax credit of 60 and 50% of AMI with family units, two and three bedrooms, um, we have a 90% uh, car ownership rate. It's difficult in the suburbs to get around without without car, especially where, where kids are concerned. So I, 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 first I bashed on Chaffa, but then let's recognize that if it's workforce housing, that's probably a very different parking requirement for affordable units than it is for, for family units. So um, it, it is a very interesting period of time that we're working with Chaffa, that we're working with planners, that we're working with community to, to find this balance of how many cars can 
we in fact do with, without? I don't know that we were able to identify uh, with clarity that balance yet. I, you know, I think uh, I keep hearing a lot of carrot conversations around parking, right? Uh, the fact that the city subsidizes our parking on the street is a huge problem, right? Uh, if you go downtown, right, what, what's your hate behavior, right? I know I circle around <laughs> wherever I'm going till I can find that one spot that is cheaper or free or whatever it is, right? It's, it's worse for the environment. It's worse for traffic. It's worse for all the things. Uh, I think the city should stop subsidizing free parking. It's ridiculous, right? The cost of free parking, in addition to that, like all of the regulations that we have on parking units are another way for the city to just get more free parking, right? Because they pass the, the cost on to the developer who then has to dig holes or build, you know, Extra, levels right. that we're, we're, all we're doing is storing cars. Like, we, everyone, I was so triggered uh, listening to the CityCast uh, podcast this week where the lady was like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to pay for parking, right? Like, I'm going to drive <laughs> up the street where I'm going to park and, and then walk to it, right? Like, this is behavior that we have by our policies yeah. instilled in people where it's just ridiculous. If we're, if we're truly committed to getting people out their cars, we need to disincentivize their usage. And so uh, getting rid of, not getting rid of the meters, but jacking it up, making it based on how, like, what the traffic is, right? Like it, it would bring in more money, it would put ease on some of the developers and it would get people out of their cars. I think, I think we need to have more of a stick approach with that. Yeah. So if I, if I can, t I was... It was great. We're all going to get worked up about parking here. Yeah. But, I know. I was um, like, I have a real big opinion about parking. Right. So the, 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 the truth is, you know, everybody complains about parking in Cherry Creek. There's plenty of parking in Cherry Creek. There's tons of parking in Cherry Creek. It's in buildings. We have the price structure. But I want to park right in front of the Cherry Cricket, Chris. I don't want to park around the corner. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> no, but I feel you. We're, People just don't use it. We're perfectly happy to have you park right in front of the, the Cherry Cricket. That's going to be expensive. Sure. That should be very, right. very expensive. If you're going to take the time to go into a garage, that should be cheaper. But instead, we have it the other way around. Because the, the city controls the parking rates that in, indeed because, you know, the, the public gets upset when we raise parking prices. So parking prices have stayed low. So the price on the street, which should be the most highest demand and hence the most expensive, is actually the cheapest. So everyone drives around looking for that space, whereas the spaces in the garages, which should be more convenient or, or a little less convenient, those should be priced lower. We have the prices exactly wrong. That's so interesting. That's such a great point. Well, we could talk about parking all day. Um, I, I guess my last question is just about equity, right? Equity is a buzzword. I just saw a true go. <sighs> because, because we talk about it a lot, but what it means in implementation is so different. When we talk about a growing city and how we accommodate and connect with and make it a place for everyone, True, what, is, what does equity mean to you in a developing city like Denver? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, equity means the same to me in this scenario as it does for many other economic scenarios, right? Like, we don't all start from the same place. And so looking at it and saying, we're going to build this place, like I said, for a 15-minute community, right? Who is that for, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think we should really consider 15-minute cities, right? 15-minute communities around the entire city, uh, 
I'm big on putting all of our solutions in all of our neighborhoods. Uh, the thing that concerns me the most with the this the the, the Cherry Creek development is that uh, we're so focused on making life so much more convenient for the people who can afford it, right? That we're that the people around it, the supporting staff, the people who actually make the city run. Are, are getting run out not just of the neighborhoods but of the entire city, right? Like uh, everywhere from the north side to the east side, where people who would make those commutes into Cherry Creek now they're it's it's being pushed out further, right? So I would love to see policies that actually consider the folks who are who are making those commutes, not just the infrastructure within, but thinking about how we how we bring people together. Yeah. That's a great point. I'm thinking about my friend who's a teacher at Lake on the north side and uh, commutes from Commerce City, because that's how she can afford it. Um, David, what does equity mean to you in a growing city like Denver as a person who builds housing, the biggest thing we need? Uh, there are so many things, and I, I, I know myself well enough that I can only pick one of them. Otherwise, I'll, I'll go too long. Um, our, our notable project, the, the stories and some of the resonance that I've gotten to know uh, are uh, painful. Um, for many of our residents, um, notable offers um, family units um, where f- uh, for the first time in their children's lives, um, their kids have their own place to sleep. Um, for a lot of our residents, for many of our residents, probably almost half of our residents, this is the first stable housing that they've ever lived in as adults, as, as adults and kids. Um, they work two to three jobs uh, a, a, uh, um, simultaneously. Um, there are um, challenges that they have that are, for, for me, um, remarkable. And they're heroic. Um, one of our moms who came from um, domestic abuse was able to, to move in with her daughter, saying that uh, for the first time in years, um, she could sl- and she's sleeping on the sofa. She has one bedroom. Her daughter, who's four years old, has the, has the bedroom. Um, it was fine with her um, that, that this was the arrangement. Um, she has described that um, uh, for the first time in five years, she goes to sleep in comfort and confidence because she knows that her daughter is safe. It's the first time. Um, the fact that we build shelter for me, shelter means something else. I live in Evergreen. Uh, I know that my house is there. I know it's going to be paid for. I know for so much of our, an increasing portion of our population. So I'm not, I'm not helping to answer. I, I'm just uh, trying to create a uh, human stories um, of demand um, that show um, through personal experience how tremendously challenging this is. And it's difficult to, it's so difficult um, because there are financial stumbling blocks. There are political and um, NIMBY stumbling blocks. Um, there's um, uh, so many challenges that, um, that make it so difficult, but thinking about those that, that serve the communities who have been excluded is often painful for me individually. So that's why we do it. Chris, the city thinking about equity and transit, what does that, what does that mean? So um, 
uh, as a as a former labor goon, I just have to put in a, a, a plug. I, I think we, we do have an affordability crisis, but we also have uh, a wages crisis. That's a big part of the formula. And uh, Colorado's done a lot. I think we have one of the best uh, minimum wage laws in the country. Denver's minimum wage is, is higher than that, but we could do a whole lot, a whole lot better and a, a whole lot more. So I, I really thank you, True, and the folks at SEIU 105 that do the hard work every day to, to, to lift up the, some of the lowest wage workers in, in, in Denver and Colorado. From a transportation perspective, um, there, there's a sort of a fundamental inequity, and I, I go back to the, 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 the hardware metaphor. So, you know, we, we have uh, uh, streets, and if you want to drive on them, they're free. If you want to take the bus, you're going to have to pay for that. And, and that's a sort of a fundamental perversity that, that you know, there, there are, there are uh, operational issues with free transit. Nonetheless, we ought to be in a position as a city to be saying to our citizens, um, wherever you want to go, in the city and county, you can get there conveniently, pleasantly, and cheaply using whatever mode recommends itself to you. So if you want to drive, we can accommodate that. If you want to take a bike, we can accommodate that. If you want to take transit, we can accommodate that. The choice is yours rather than having us structure your choice by saying, this is free, got to pay for that. This is fine and safe. Uh, you might get hit by a car if you're taking a bike on this road. That's, I, th I think that, that's, that's the equity goal for the city, is to, is to make it possible for our citizens to make their own choices about how to move around without structuring those choices for them. Well, True, David, and Chris, thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. Thank, thank you, you for having us. And thanks, thank you, Stuart and Erica, Transportation Solutions. This is our second year doing this, and we love it. We love this audience. We have a, our listenership is, tr they love transit. So getting to have this conversation is really important to us as a show as well. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, and thank, thank you. you all for coming. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were Paul Caroli and Aaron O'Toole. Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. I'm Bree Davies, your host. Our music is by Los Mocachetes with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren, plus more from the Epidemic Sound Library. If you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CityCast Denver and tell Governor Jared Polis about us next time you see him. You can sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866 and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. See you next week. Oh, I was trying to like, I was trying to make a list of all the places I worked. I was like, okay, 1995, KB Toys. Then I did what's called floor moves for Bath and Body Works. So I would go in at night and move all their giant barrels of hand sanitizer to a different side of the store and like re-merchandise it. That was a job I got through my friend Jamie. Oh, he was awesome. And then Foley's, obviously. I worked at the Clinique counter at Foley's. 
It was a short time. It was like probably two years. I got fired from that job. That was a huge bummer. <laughs> but I still have friends from that place. Uh, the Gap. Uh, the Learning Smith. When like stores about knowledge were popular. Um, I also worked there during its buyout and liquidation, which is the most depressing experience you can have in retail is watching a store get liquidated while you work there. Um, I worked at a weird clothing store for tweens um, that sold raver clothes to tweens called Zootopia. Um, we got in trouble for our advertising being weirdly sexual. Um, we also had live child models in the in the windows. Yeah. Weird stuff. Um Oh my God, I'm probably forgetting somewhere. Obviously, the. Oh, I have burned this from my memory. Apple. Probably the worst retail job I've ever had. Coolest, most smart people I've ever worked with. It wasn't them, it was the job. Uh, I think that's it. <laughs>